this wasn't my question, but now I feel like it has to be my question. Does that do Morbius? It's going to be part of it. Oh, God. But originally I was going to ask, like, if you could, totally inspired by your cruise, if you could, like, form the perfect, like, music cruise, what would it be? But we're not going to do that. We're going to do a different one. So, Lee and I, if you followed on Twitter, we have been sucked into a Morbius <laughs> meme chat. Don't know how All we got thanks here. to my husband, Josh, and our friend who we worked with, me and Leah worked with, Shane, and then Shane met Josh, and they've become very good friends. So now the four of us are in a group chat. So now the four of us are in a group chat about Morbius, <laughs> and which Shane and Josh have fully hijacked, may I just let you know... And it could only be Morbius memes right now. With the occasional <laughs> Obi-Wan meme. With the occasional Obi-Wan meme, I just got a thick Wario. Yeah, I don't like, know where he came from. Like thick, three C's thick Wario <laughs> in my <laughs> in my chat. So, you know, this has been our lives for about two weeks. And I've just fully accepted that I'm now in another meme group chat, which, you know, at work, I'm. I have such a hard time multitasking. I'm like, great. Another like 30 <laughs> things, messages I'm going to catch on, but that's fine. It's all about friendship. But this brings up the question. Form a meme chat, like the topic and put which friends are in it. I don't have to be in it. But you know, if you want to, I can understand. And it can't be an existing one that I have. Can't be an existing one. I guess I'm going to have to do Star Wars memes in general because I, I send the same memes yeah. to my three Twitter friends. So, you know, I should just make a group chat, even though the three don't know each other individually. Yeah. And it would be Thomas. Yep. Hi, Thomas. Uh, my friend Patrick that I met in line at a Mr. Wives concert. <laughs> and then Josiah, who listens to the show. So Yay, we're going to have because I end up sending the three of them like the same stuff every week. So it would just save me some sharing if we were all in a group chat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. That's a good one. Yeah. I know sometimes like we have a smaller group chat that gets flared up once in a while with me, you and Thomas. Yeah. That we send some memes back and forth. But Thomas and I are at a whole oh, other level of Star Wars memes. You know, you know, I'm not I'm not anywhere near that. <laughs> I'm just lucky I can follow the storyline. They said Quinlan Voss this week. And we were both like, what the fuck? Quinlan and I was like, lived? me. <laughs> You're like, who's, who's that? Head Bobby. <laughs> that's a name. I, I could only imagine. I, I really could only imagine. Uh, but yeah, that's a good one. I think for me, it would have to be just like old nostalgic. Like I'm very much into like the type of humor. Like I have $7,000 and like $70,000 in student loans debt and I want to die. Ha ha. Like, <laughs> It'd be like that. That is very much like my humor style because it's just... It's just life, you know. I didn't ask to be George Carlin life. I didn't ask to be born exactly. <laughs> so I would create that group of memes. So existential crisis. Existential crisis. I love existential crisis, and it's just the four in me. Really, is what it is. And I would probably put, well, one Josh. Oddly enough, even though he's going to hijack it and make it Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would put my brother in it because he's the definition of existential crisis. And then I'd probably put in it. Shane. Mm. So really the three people I always talk to anyway. Um, trying to think if there's anyone else. Yeah, that's probably it. Existential crisis memes. Existential crisis memes. Anyway. 
I'm Beth Ann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dump in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, pull up before I haul you. Let me turn down the thermostat. Please, this bad. We're on page one, guys. This is She Will Rock You. So, very early on, disclaimer, I had COVID last week. Mm-hmm. So, A, that meant that my notes may not make sense because I did them when I still was sick. But also, I'm probably going to lose my voice at some point in this because I haven't talked as much in a week. Yeah. And there's still some uh, some, some phlegm going on. Yeah. So, uh, TBD. So, don't write us and send us a nasty email about the amount of vocal fry I've got going on today. <laughs> I know. Uh, believe me, I know. You know, on Ancestry.com, I can explain <laughs> why you have that vocal fry. Feel free to send us all the Ancestry.com links. Just know we do not have a membership. No, and we're not logging in. So at least copy paste the info you're trying to, you know, call us out on. Screenshot. Screenshot's a beautiful tool. But anyway, this is episode 69. Nice. And I really, today I was like, shit, I should have done the band that sings Summer of 69 for this, but it's too late now. And it, I literally gone. realized it's two hours ago. But... It is now June. It is fucking 93 degrees outside for some yeah. goddamn reason. And nothing screams summer to me more than John Mellencamp. It's a good choice. It's another, he's another artist that like when my dad gave me my iPod video all those years ago and just mm-hmm. threw random shit on there, like John Mellencamp was on there. Fucking love John Mellencamp. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's time he gets his moment on the pod. It is, and it's also just it's different than what we've done before. So it's always nice. So John Mellencamp was born in Seymour, Indiana on October 7th, 1951. I bet you the marketing campaign for that town is fun. It's fantastic. There's nothing there. Seymour, Indiana. Literally. (laughs) There's cornfield. Literally my next point is now the important thing to remember about Indiana, especially in this area in the fifties is it's just farms. It's just corn. I have driven through Indianapolis and you hit the city and it's like, oh, it's cool. It's kind of spread out. <laughs> and then they like all their streets are named like 12th Street, 13th Street, 14th Street. You get to like 16th Street and it's just cornfields. That's, that's And it's it. like that, that that's not a, a street proper of the 16th, like the 16th Street. It should be a city. No. Nope. nope. And I mean, spoiler alert, John loves living in Indiana, <laughs> which is not something I think most people from Indiana hey. say. If it's his passion, go for it. But um, yeah, so he grew up in a farming town. His grandfather had moved there from Germany in the late 1800s. He moved there to be a farmer and then quickly was like, nah, fuck that. Became a carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) Much more stable job. Um, But then he lost everything that he had, like the entire family homestead in the Great Depression. Mm. John is one of five kids in his, you know, from his parents, which his grandfather moved from Germany is his dad's dad um and he had to fight for his life from day one he was actually born with spina bifida Mm. and had corrective surgery as an infant he pretty much never had any issues since then but you know having surgery on a a baby in the 50s was was a dicey situation he like many kids had a lot of energy so he taught himself to play the guitar as a way to channel that energy and one thing that I love about him is he was never interested in being like the fash the the flashiest or like best guitar player yeah. ever. He just wanted to accompany himself so he could sing like with his bros. 
Mm -hmm. all he wanted. He actually forms his first band called Crepe Soul. Yes. That's a good one. It's a good one. At the age of 14, this lasted a year and a half. Good run. Um, he's obviously still living at home at this time where he's like trying to figure out what he's doing. Mm -hmm. His dad gets a big promotion. And because, you know, dad grew up with a dad who lost everything in the Great Depression. It's always his goal to like buy a big house and fix it up and have he's got five kids. Um, so he does that. He buys a big rundown house and he decides to renovate it with labor provided by his three sons kind of against their will. Yeah. Um, and this caused a lot of tension between John and his dad. They would get in fights, and the documentary I watched said John ultimately lost every single time. <laughs> but it did kind of it kind of like gave him like the scrappy mentality of like yeah. standing up to authority figures. Uh, when he turns eighteen, he gets married to his twenty-one-year-old pregnant girlfriend. Oh, okay. <laughs> Her name's Priscilla Esterline. There's a theme between our yeah. But at least there's there wasn't a baby involved. Yeah, that's true. There wasn't a baby involved. He literally only married her because she was pregnant. They snuck off to City Hall, got married, came home, went to their separate houses. And the next day they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're married. And his parents were like, well, nothing we can do about it now. She's yeah. pregnant and you're married. So have fun with that. Right. So six months later, or no, six months later, six months after he graduates high school in December 1970, he becomes a dad. Aw, cute. His daughter, Michelle, later becomes a mother herself at 18, which made him a grandfather at 37. Hmm. Fascinating. How about that? Um, unsurprisingly, he did not take fatherhood seriously mm. and, quote, wasn't into getting a job. <laughs> Instead, he was into motorcycles and standing around in the street corner. <laughs> <laughs> Very King of the Hill style. Very king of the hill. <laughs> Just standing there. Yep. 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 And he does this for the next three years. <laughs> what a hobby. <laughs> that's uh, that's literally in his own words what he said. Um, he does go on after the three years of standing on the corner to attend Vincennes University. It was nearby Vincennes, Indiana. He starts there in 1972 and he goes to school with the intention of studying how to be a radio DJ. Mm -hmm. Fitting career. In college, he finds drugs. Uh-oh. This is like his one and only brush with drugs. Um, I don't know if I if I wrote it in here at all, but he he has his like party years where he's at this two year program and then he kinda grew out of it. He said that was one thing that like kept made him different from all of his peers in the music industry is he realized that, you know, it's it's fun when you're twenty two and you're blackout drunk on your friend's bathroom floor. Yeah. It's not so funny when you're 34 blackout drunk and like causing yeah. a ruckus. So like he did his two year experimentation and he moved on with life. Mm -hmm. um, but he got super, super high in college. He said, when I was high on pot, it affected me so drastically that when I was in college, there were times I just would not get off the couch. I'd lie there listening to music with the record player right next to me. So I wouldn't have to get up to flip the record over. I'd listen to the record, that record. Before or five days where I'd just be completely gone. So I'm really wondering how he passed college. Yeah, me too. But he does. Um, so he graduates with a degree in radio DJing. But the only jobs he could find were in radio advertising. And he was like, fuck that. Yeah. So he immediately aban abandons this entire plan a week after graduation. <laughs> uh, you know, 
It happens more often than you think. Yeah. There DJs are few and far between. Yeah. Um, so he gets a job at the phone company. Lovely job. And starts a band called Trash. Trash? No. You can't <laughs> go from Crepe. Crepe Soul? Crepe Soul to Trash. Trash. Well, it's named after a New York Dolls song. Okay. Um, they're a glitter rock cover band. And by his own admission, they sucked. <laughs> he also very quickly got fired from the phone company because he would use foul language with customers. Uh. Um, so at this point, he's like, I guess music is my only option for a career because my time's running out. I'm 21. I'm old. Like, I have no more career options in my life. Mm-hmm. So he starts to, like, take music a little bit more seriously. He's sending out demo tapes. He spends 18 months driving back and forth between Indiana and New York City in like 19, late 1974, all of 1975. Um, and he eventually finds someone who wants to listen to him and like thinks they can do something with, with all of this. Yeah. And he meets Tony DeFreeze of Main Man Management, who had just made David Bowie famous. Oh, so like, big deal. Man knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, John had like a demo first album thing going on. And Tony DeFreeze was like, you know, we can release this, but no one's going to buy a music from an artist with the German name Mellencamp. Um, So he was like, you're going to have a stage name. So he does this and changes his name to Johnny Cougar, but doesn't tell John Mellencamp he's doing it until after or like what the name was. Until after everything's been printed. I can't imagine he took well to that. Well, he found out and he started complaining. And Tony was like, well, if you don't like it, you can just go back to pouring concrete, which is what you were doing. And John said, you know what? It's not that bad. I'll learn to live with it. Yeah. And just rolled with it. So he was Johnny Cougar for a while. Um, In fall of 1976. <laughs> I forgot about this. Tony Freeze brings. Tony DeFreeze brings. John back to Seymour, Indiana. And he's got a bunch of record label money and a bunch of promo ideas. And they descend on the town and create Johnny Cougar Day. <laughs> so picture like the cheesiest movie pep rally. Yeah. And spread that over the entire town. They've got like a parade dedicated to Johnny Cougar. That's so funny. They've got like marching bands marching in the parade. The band ends up playing. There were shirts and snacks and games, and it was a whole festival. It was completely ridiculous. Johnny has no fucking clue what's going on. He was told to show up. Yeah. Um, he said, I didn't know what was really going on, but it was a hell of a lot better than working at the phone company. <laughs> <laughs> I bet so. Um, so he, the album's not even out yet, first of all. This mm-hmm. is all pre-album hype. He drops his first album, which is called Chestnut Street Incident. And it flops so hard because they built it up so hard. It just didn't live up to the hype. Um, Well, they spent all the money building a town for him. It didn't work. A demographic of maybe 4,000 people in that square unit. They didn't all buy an album. Yeah. There's your problem. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, So he records his second album. It's called The Kid Inside. And Tony was like, never mind. And boots him from the label. (sighs) Jeez. So fuck you, Tony. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no worries, because he doesn't stay off of the label for long. He very quickly gets the attention of Rod Stewart's management and gets signed to Reva Records, which means 
he has to move to London for a year to work on a new record. Mm. And I have no idea if his wife and daughter came with him or what. I don't think they did because we'll see they get divorced very quickly Yeah. Uh, after. But like, has this man ever been home since he got married? I don't think so. Mm. So in that album that he goes to record in London gets released in 1978. It's called A Biography. Um, and it doesn't get released in the U.S., which makes no sense to me because he's from the U.S., his label's based in the U.S., but it does get him a top five hit in Australia. So, like, it's going okay. somewhere. Yeah, there you go. Um, and the one that goes top five in Australia is called I Need a Lover. So they add that to his next U.S. release because now it's going to get all confusing. But um, Pat Benatar hears this song and is like... Oh. I like it. So she records it for In the Heat of the Night. Yes. Which if you listened to our last episode on Pat Benatar, you knew already. Um, and her version goes on to be a number 28 single in 1989. And it kind of like launches him into mild fame. 1979. 1979. I literally look, I'm looking right at it. I saw, okay. I saw 28 single. So he does what anyone in the 80s does with mild fame. And tours every damn night of the week across the country. Jeez. But what about his wife and his now nine-year-old child? Yeah, how'd that go? He ignores them. That's a bad idea. Not like on purpose. He's just living the life of a single rocker. He's not putting in a whole lot of effort to go back and like bring them with him. Yeah. But he's also not doing it on like purpose, purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just having fun and being a bro and partying on the road or whatever. Um... And around this time, even though they only released like one and a half records mm-hmm. under Reva Records, they're like, you're not growing fast enough in the States. So like you have one more shot or we're dropping you, you know, tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. So what does he do? He goes in and creates American Fool, which becomes his breakthrough album. This is the album that contains Hurts So Good, which spent four weeks at number two. And Jack and Diane, which spent four weeks at number one. Jack and Diane was actually considered to be too radical by the label, and they didn't want to put it out, which is hilarious to me now because it's not even that bad, like, really. Yeah. Unless you're exaggerating. But it is probably one of the most popular songs ever. In this interview that I watched from, like, the late 90s, Mm -hmm. John Mellencamp said that song gets played on the radio just as much today as it did in this when he released it. Mm-hmm. How many songs do that? That's Once true. you make it to Q99, that you're golden. You're just raking in those royalties for forever. Um, this album made him the first artist with a number one album and two top ten singles since John Lennon. So, oh wow, pretty good. Yeah, he's doing pretty good for himself. And he actually goes on to win a Grammy Award for best male rock vocal oh, performance. There you go. He's up against Pat Benatar. Uh, for her hurt so good but um his take on this album is to be real honest there's three good songs on that record and the rest is just sort of filler it was too labored over it wasn't organic enough the record company thought it would bomb and i think the reason it took off was not that the songs were better than my others but people just like the sound of it the bum 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 drums yeah it was just different sound which it is it's very much like quintessential John Mellencamp. So even though he's getting like his rise to fame, his personal life starts to get a little complicated. Because if you remember, he just kind of left his wife and kid in Indiana. Yeah. Um, 
So while he's been touring, he's been having an affair with Victoria Grenache. Not a good idea. No. She's an actress that he met while he was in L.A. And his wife knew that there was another woman, but she also knew there was like nothing she could do about it because they really only got married because she was pregnant. They were never mm-hmm. in love. They just basically had sex one time and were hooked together for the rest of yeah. 10 years. Um, so she like accepts this. She leaves and gets her own apartment. They come to like a very mutual split up. They realize it wasn't going to work. They remained friends and decided not to have a lot of bitterness between them, which good, good respect. Um, Priscilla actually ends up becoming really good friends with Vicky and helps her pick out her wedding gown and plan her wedding to John. Um, And of course, John being John, he ends up marrying Vicky when she's six months pregnant. <laughs> uh, you know, trends. But, you know. That's good. They got married. They were, they were like... They it, it's it, While the affair is not right. No. It, the healthy thing to do is realize, hey, you yeah. didn't get married for the right reasons. Let's split up Hardest and stay friends. friends. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. We respect. Um... But this does kind of give him a little bit of an awakening in his life where he's like, if I go off and record a record somewhere, I get myself in trouble. So he buys a house in Bloomington, Indiana, and converts it into a recording studio, which he dubs The Shack. Nice. <laughs> Simple. Um, and the perk of having a recording studio next to his home in small town America is that he can really write what he sees. He's mm-hmm. not like trying to come up with random ideas in London when he's there for a year. Like he is an Indiana homegrown man and he wants to write about Indiana homegrown things. Um so after he like finishes construction of the shack, he gets this burst of inspiration and records his next album in just 16 days at the shack. And at this point in his life, he's been making music for like 10 years, so he's like how about we come? We start using my actual name because mm-hmm. I don't really love Johnny Cougar. It's not my gr- the f- name that my grandpa brought over here. So he was still Johnny Cougar when he did. Hurt so good and I- hurt so. Name. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. If you talk to if you mention John Mellencamp to someone over the age of forty five, they'll probably say John Cougar. Okay. Which is funny, or John Cougar Mellencamp, mm-hmm. which is what he changes his name to now. Yeah. He he's now. Releasing music under John Cougar Mellencamp. Gotcha. And this album is called Uh-huh. 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 And it's this recording of this album is where his backing band really settles on the lineup that it'll stay for a very long time. Uh, just to mention them, we got Kenny Aronoff on drums, Larry Crane and Mike Wanchik on guitars, Toby Myers on bass, and John Casella on keyboards. That's all I'm going to tell you about them because we've got other stuff to talk about. Sorry, guys. They exist. Here they, you go. They're there. Um, but they are, they're a very good, very tight band. In 1988, Rolling Stone magazine called this version of his band one of the most powerful and versatile live bands ever assembled. Um, and they, they got this way because they've been on tour for fucking ever. Mm-hmm. They played almost a thousand or over a thousand shows around the globe in the last 10 years. So like they are masters of their craft at this yeah. point, which is pretty cool. So he does go back on tour for this cycle because, you know, he'll stay at home to record, but not stay at home and not tour. Like, he's still going to get in trouble, but whatever. Um, And on this tour specifically, he earns his reputation for his A, hot temper. Like, he has a very low tolerance 
for anyone doing anything and he'll yell at them. But also he has really, really high standards for his live show. Like to give you an idea of what he was like when they would set up for the day, he would spend hours sitting in various seats around these theaters he was playing and make necessary adjustments on stage to ensure that everyone, no matter whether you bought the front row seats or the last row seats, last row seats was getting the optimal show possible. That's good. Which I respect. I like people who think about the artist experience, not yeah. just, oh, let's get the money. Like that $45 back row seat, they deserve a good show too. Yeah, totally. Um, After this tour, he was like, you know, I really liked working in the shack. So I guess the one house he bought wasn't good enough. So he sells the shack, buys a different house in Belmont, hmm. and like builds a permanent recording studio. It's 15 minutes from his house. So he can just like pop down there when he feels inspired, which is pretty cool. In 1985, he releases his album Scarecrow, which peaked at number two. It, it's probably his like second most famous album of all, and includes songs such as R-O-C-K in the USA, which is like the quintessential July 4th theme song. Mm -hmm. And he actually dedicated this album to his grandfather who had passed away the year before. And this album paints a picture of family farms lost to American greed. Mm. So it is obviously his grandfather lost his home whole homestead in the Great Depression. And he never really like recovered from that much like many people in the Great Depression did it. Um, but now it's the 80s and we're seeing things such as John's brother-in-law, who had been a cattle and pig farmer all his life, at this point in his life is working 16 hours a day and can barely scrape by enough money to feed his family. Like mm -hmm. farming has just hit this point in the 80s, much like today, where it's just not sustainable, which is stupid because we need farms. Otherwise, we're yeah. going to die. But that's another issue. And so... um. He wrote a lot about, you know, small American towns, fading American dream, corporate greed, just your typical 80s. Yeah, you know. 80s stuff. Um, and I actually wrote my note, glad to know nothing's changed since 1985. No. <laughs> he probably was a little bit ahead of his time, really. Yeah. Yeah. He does kind of change up his sound for this album. He really wanted to, like, inject classic 60s rock into Scarecrow. So he gave his band homework. He gave them a hundred old singles, I guess like forty five. Yeah. And told them to learn them almost mathematically verbatim prior to writing this album. <laughs> what a phrase. Don't just like learn it front to back. Learn it mathematically correct. Yeah, I don't really know what that means, but that's what he said. Yeah. Um, but it really paid off. He said learning those songs did a lot of positive things. We realized more than ever what a big melting pot of all different types of music the sixties were. Take an old Rascals song, for example. There's everything from marching band beats to soul music to country sounds all in one song. Learning those opened the band's vision to trying new things on my song. Uh, which, you know, that's a great way of thinking about writing an album. Yeah. I really like it. Um, and this is just a weird side tangent that I'm going to go on because I found it during my research. Scarecrow is considered the start of the alternative country subgenre called no depression <laughs> and if you're wondering holy what shit. the fuck is no depression don't worry i did too so i, I like of course went down See, this we're, we're, hole. we're researchers people um he doesn't get credit for it really which is dumb because this album is like the first one that falls in this subcategory yeah scholars don't give him the credit but like people who are in this space do so anyway 
No Depression represents an extension of the alternative country rock genre, which originates at the end of the 1960s with the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Yes, that's a real band. And was revived in the 1980s through the work of Jason and the Scorchers, Uncle Tupelo, and others. This genre melded country sounds, particularly the twangy, honky-tonk style, exemplified by Hank Williams Sr. and punk. Hmm. I still can't really tell you what it sounds like. You gotta listen to Scarecrow to figure it yeah. out. But like, no depression. No depression. <laughs> it basically combines the truth-telling force of country with the instrumental attack of rock and roll. That's the best description I found of it. So punk. But like, twangy punk. Twangy punk. It's like the alternative before y'all turn ah, see see there you go i'm tracking now john mellencamp is the original y'all alternative you heard it here so shortly after he finishes his album he gets the attention of willie nelson and neil young and they're like you want to organize a benefit concert and they're he's like fuck yeah i love farmers and they throw together farm aid Oh, that's nice. Which you may remember because Joni Mitchell was there too. Mm-hmm. I remember farming. Um, that the very first one took place on September twenty second, nineteen eighty five. They still are an annual event, although I'm assuming they took some time off for the pandemic. And to date, have raised over sixty million dollars. That's pretty cool for struggling family farmers, which is pretty cool. Um, and being handpicked by Willie Nelson does him some favors in life. A, you know, it's pretty cool to be handpicked by Willie yeah, Nelson. Yeah, no kidding. But up until this point in his life, the press is focused on one thing, and that's John Mellencamp is the next Bruce Springsteen. Next Bruce Springsteen. This kid's the next Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. He's the Bruce Springsteen of the modern age, and he's just like, stop calling me that. Like, yeah, no kidding. That's not who I am. And so after Farm Aid, they start calling him the voice of the heartland. That's much better way title. better, yeah. Um, and he immediately starts to work on his next album. He works on... The Lonesome Jubilee, which will come out in 1987. And I really don't have much to say about this, but I love this quote from him because it's so dumb. For the first time ever, we talked about the record before we started. You know what my mind also went to? So you know how the queen's having her platinum jubilee? Yeah. I was like, yeah, when she's 80 years on the throne, she gets the Lonesome the Jubilee. Lonesome Jubilee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had a very distinct vision of what should be happening here. At one point, the Lonesome Jubilee was supposed to be a double album, but at least 10 of the songs I'd written just didn't stick together, and it didn't sound like what we had in mind. So I put those songs on a shelf and cut it back down to a single record. Um, and what do you know? Talking about an album before recording it... No shit. ...actually helps you. Really? <laughs> he ends up with two singles off this album that crack the top 10, um, and Cherry Bomb specifically took off, which is notable because... Video is still a very new medium. Yeah. The country is very racist at this point and pretty much never moved on. But, you know, besides the fact. Um, but the love interest in this video for Cherry Bomb is a black woman. Mm-hmm. And no one did that in 1987, 8. Um, he actually got death threats from the KKK for oh. featuring a black woman in his video. Good Lord. Which John was like, what? She's gorgeous. She deserves to be in the video. Yeah. Um, and his manager told him, like, just so you know, you're getting death threats in the KKK. And he goes, well, then fuck them. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. That's my response. What do you want me to do about it? So fuck off. I got nothing. I got nothing to say to you. We, we stand John for that. Yes. Fuck the KKK. He tours his album for about a year. And, you know, 
old habits die hard because he's not behaving himself on the road. Uh oh. And he ends up getting divorced from Vicky. Come on, man. After eight years of marriage. So he's divorced for the second time in like 20 years, which he takes pretty hard because he's kind of fucked this up twice for himself. Yeah. Um, he gets he falls into a really deep depression and he ends up writing his 1989 album called Big Daddy, which I'm going to call his divorce album. Yeah. He actually was so just like torn up from this whole thing that he chose not to tour and instead focused on his painting, which helped him process his divorce. So therapy would have been nice too, but you know, painting works. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually had several painting exhibitions instead of a tour. And one of the articles described him, his paintings as always having sad facial expressions and conveying the same disillusionment found in the nation's anthems about the nation's heartland and farm crisis that he sang. And he kind of just stays in this depression for two years. Like Mm. nothing's looking good. He's just sad. Um, He doesn't want to make music. Yeah. But he kind of comes out of it to make his 1991 album whenever we wanted. And thank God, this is the album where he finally was Cougar. He just goes under John Mellencamp from here on That's forward. That's nice. So, goodbye, Cougar. But also when he's working on this album, they shoot a video. I don't know what song it's for. And he meets this model that they brought out to this video shoot. Her name's Elaine Irwin. She's 20. He's 37. Kind of weird, but whatever. Um, and their first interaction with each other is he shows up on the set for this video and he goes, what the fuck is she doing here? She's too young to be my love interest in the video. She looks like my daughter. <sighs> and she's just like, hello? Yeah. I'm here. So they end up shooting the video. Like, they don't really interact. Uh, she never, she doesn't hear back from him. But then later that fall, he comes to play a show in New York City where he knew that she was living and he gave her a call and was like, it was kind of aggressive. I don't know how I feel about this. He said, I'm coming to New York to play a show. We're going to go out on a date. If you say no, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. What the f- Like, kidding? Yeah, She thinks still- it's hilarious when she tells the story, because they're married now. Spoiler. Okay. Um, She thinks it's hilarious, but I'm like, don't date that man. Yeah. Who's twice your age, but whatever. Worked out for them. Um, They very quickly fall in love, like head over heels in love. Most in love John Mellencamp has ever been. Oh, that's nice. Uh, They get married. And for the first time, his relationship actually works for him because she was already famous and successful and didn't need anything from him. Like she had her own career. She had her own money. She had her own work schedule. Like they can just be a couple and be in love. Yeah, that's nice. So good for them. Um, In the fall of 1991, Shortly after getting married, like two months after getting married, he starts having what he thinks are panic attacks. Spoiler, they're not panic attacks. Mm. Um, He would just like be sitting there doing nothing and get these intense rushes of adrenaline that make him feel like he's going to pass out. Yeah. Um, Probably need to get that looked into. He does not. He ignores it. So they go out on this, um, whatever album they're on at this point, I don't remember. They go on this radio tour, which sounds fucking awful. They were hitting three radio stations a day. They would do a morning show in, like, say, Chicago. Then they would get in the car and drive another four hours to, I don't know, what's four hours from Chicago? Somewhere in Indiana. Somewhere in Indiana. Indiana. They'll do the lunchtime show there. They'll get in the car, drive another four hours, and do an evening show in another city. Go to sleep for, like, maybe four hours. Wake up and do it all again. That's exhausting. They did it for 14 days straight. No. So towards the end of this tour, 
he's in a station in Seattle and he passes out. Mm. So he goes to the hospital and like he's not doing drugs. He's he did drugs in college. Like we're not doing drugs. He <laughs> the doctor's like, stop smoking. Mm-hmm. Take a nap and stop living like you're a rock star. You're almost 50 now, John. Like you mm-hmm. got to calm down. So he ignores all their warnings and kicks off his tour in January 1992. And this is like a really grueling tour. Um, it finishes with a 4th of July celebration in Indianapolis, which is pretty much his hometown. Like, yeah, if you're playing a stadium show, it's your hometown. Um, that September, he marries Elaine. Like I mentioned, they're super happy. Oh, this is this is what things are good for two months. Things are good for two months. And then in November, John's keyboardist died just completely suddenly. He had a heart attack. Um, his name's John Casella. He was mm-hmm. 41 years old. Oh, my gosh. Just completely out of the blue. Like, he wasn't having any symptoms. Um, and people, like, the band took this really, really hard because they all said, like, he was the best guy in the band. He was the nicest guy in the band. He's always happy. Yeah. Know? No one suspected anything. Um, and they take his death really hard. But no one takes the fact that he died of a heart attack at 41 really hard. Yeah, there's some issues there. And just keeps doing what they're doing. Yeah. So they ha- they do go back on tour again. They take, I guess we're in two months, th- two years to kind of, you know, regroup. In 1994, they go on tour again. And um, his lifestyle really starts to catch up with him. At this point in his life, he's smoking five packs a day. Bro no he couldn't even sleep through the night because he'd wake up every few hours and need to go smoke a cigarette yeah that's a problem it's a big problem so they're doing a show in long island sometime in 1994 on this tour and this makes no sense to me but i mean whatever he (laughs) comes off stage and he thinks he has a cold in his arms i that's nothing i've ever cold in his arms he said he felt like his arms had a cold he that they just like felt achy? like, huh? Like achy? No, he said they just felt really heavy. He felt like he, he said he felt like it was congested in his arms. Oh, okay. So they cancel a couple shows. He like takes a couple days. He had a heart off. attack, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, because that's usually you know a heart attack's coming on <coughs> if your pa- arm is in pain. Yeah, like that. He just ignores it. No. Takes a couple naps. Never ignore that, folks. They finish the tour. They play 20 shows in a row before he goes home to, like, he said to get real doctors to look at him because I guess there's the University of Indiana- Indianapolis yeah. nearby. And that's the only doctors he trusts in life. Um, So he goes, he's like, maybe I should get a physical. And it turns out the time he felt weird was a heart attack. <laughs> um, He didn't mm-hmm. believe the doctor. Fun fact, he told the doctor, there's no fucking way I had a heart attack. And the doctor just like looks him dead in the eyes and was like, John, a first year medical student could look at this and tell me that you had a heart attack. Yeah. You had a heart attack. And so he's no like, kidding. well, I guess I'm going to die now and cancels the rest of his tour, which no, because the doc- yeah. the manager or his manager was like, you know, there is a solution to this. You can stop smoking. Right. Rest some more and like eat healthy because his eating habits are terrible. Yeah. He's been on the road for 20 years. Right. Um, and John was like, no, you don't understand the chokehold that smoking has on me. And he's like, but maybe I can take care of the other stuff. Oh my God. So with Elaine's help, he changes his diet. He starts working out. Mm-hmm. He like does everything to get healthy except stop smoking. You know, 
there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. A lot to be said. And so, like, the documentary that I watched obviously ended in the 90s. So I got curious and I was like, did he ever stop? Because in the, the documentary, he never stopped. So I actually found an article from January 2022, which is from page six. So take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, but he's still smoking. Actually, in this article is an embedded video of him in an interview with David Letterman in 2015 smoking a cigarette on the show. Holy (laughs) cow. Which is hilarious to me that like even in 2015 that was allowed because now it would never fly. You couldn't smoke a cigarette on live television. No. What are you talking about? Not at all. Um, So after this health scare, he takes some time off because he thinks he's dead. He realizes he's not dead. Like he's still very much alive. And mm-hmm. if he just puts in some effort, he'll p- continue to be alive. Um, but he, he starts getting antsy. He's like, I've done this for so long. I can't not be playing shows. Yeah. So he does something really cool. And he and his band start playing under the fake name Pearl Doggy. And they don't publicize it anywhere. They just show up to local bars. Oh, I like that. And just play like they would a stadium yeah. show. Which I love. That's really cool. Because it's low pressure and they're just making music for the hell of it. Yeah, that's nice. And, and that's got to be good on your blood pressure, too. It's good on your blood pressure. The band, they interviewed them in the in the documentary. They loved it. They're like, it was fun again. Like, it was back yeah. to their, the old days, which is really cool. And I really like that they did that. Um, We're just skipping forward to August 2000. He, another cool thing that he does. I forgot he did this. He loves his fans so much and he loves the midwest so much like he's such a midwestern boy he plays a series of unannounced free concerts in major cities all up and down the east coast of the midwest as a way of giving back to his fans so they like have a super low-tech setup they got like portable amps battery-powered pa an acoustic guitar um and a accordionist and a violinist and that's it he calls it the good samaritan tour it's completely free just vibing. Oh, I like that. Vibing in the streets. He there was like a, a dozen of these shows, and he said nobody's selling anything. There's no souvenirs except for what's in everybody's heart. Aww, which I love. So, uh, where is he now? We're just gonna jump way ahead. In 2010, unfortunately, he and Elaine did split up. No. After being married for 18 years. Oh, that's. They had sucks. a good run. I don't. I think it was. I don't know why they split up. I'm going to assume it was mutual. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had a few model girlfriends since then. Nothing super serious. Yeah. Three mar- He's 70 now, so three marriages is probably enough for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I just need to point out that in 2017, he released an album called Sad Clowns and Hillbillies, <laughs> which I think is my favorite album title. That's great. Ever. Um, so, yeah, now he's 70. He's still living in Indiana. He says he's going to die in Indiana. He's released 24 albums, including a 2022 release called Strictly a One-Eyed Jack, which has a collaboration with Bruce Springsteen called Wasted Days, which if you want to cry, go listen to two 70-year-old legacy musicians mm. sing about dying. No it's great. Um, it kind of got to me last night. So, um, he, you know, he's not one of the more famous ones, which I think... He's kind of underrated for that. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got some bops. And he's done yeah. some cool shit. So we need to talk more about John Mellencamp as, totally. a, as a society.
Thank you for listening. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Good Pods. Special thanks to Deathathon for our intro riff. You can visit our website at shewillrockyou.com. There you'll find our socials, show notes, contact us, and our merch. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs>